Okay, welcome everybody. If you're online, by the way, we, um, I've got, not just online, if you're here, I don't know if you're on the way you saw in, but the text of Romans 13, I have a sheet. It's in a diagram form, and that way you can draw circles and lines if you want to. If you want one and didn't get one, um, I still think they're in the back somewhere. Is that right, Bill? Um, so if you want to pick one of those up, if you're online, we emailed it to you. I meant to do it Friday. My bad. We did it early this morning, but you can still get on and print that off. We're going to be in Romans chapter 13, if you have your Bible. We're going to be in Romans 13 today. Um, going to be today wrapping up the series we've been on and how we respond to the big national events that have been crying out for our attention. Um, you know, again, something that as we talked and the deacons, we felt like some topics, some issues we needed to address. Um, and I really feel like the topic has been important because we live in this media age, I feel like, where I'm in mean, this age that humanity's never seen, where there is so much crying out for our attention. And I think it's easy to get caught up emotionally in so much stuff, and then we forget what we're to be about. And that's kind of been the, the theme underneath all of this, but just trying to help us to have a big worldview on how do we look at things that are going on around us nationally. Um, so we're going to wrap this up for now. I have more to say on a number of topics, but those are going to wait for a later date. Um, we're going to take an extended pause. I'm excited about the next three weeks. We're going to be celebrating God's work among the nations. We usually do a weekend missions conference. Um, this year, because of COVID, we can't quite do it that way, so we're going we're gonna to extend it over three weeks, and I'm really pumped to have that focus on, on the nations. To, to wrap it up, the climax, Ken Shackelford will be here. He was here four or five years ago and did a really great job and excited that he can come back. So this morning, one of the topics I felt like when we're talking about national issues that we needed to, to address was what does the Bible say about the government? and our relationship to the government. And so we are going to be in Romans 13. It's probably the key text in the Bible that talks about this topic. Um, Ronald Reagan had a lot of good things to say about the government. One of my favorites is this. He says, government's view of the economy could be summed up in a few, few short phrases. If it moves, tax it. If it keeps moving, regulate it. And if it stops moving, subsidize it. Uh, I thought that was really great. Uh, he had a number of things, but here, here's the question, I think, just with all the big issues that have been going on nationally, is the question of how do we think about government? Um, what is our responsibility to the government? What should our attitude be towards the government and governmental workers? How do we respond to and treat people who are in government? Because government is made up and run by people. And in Romans 13, Paul answers these questions. And in this text, I think Paul, I see three important things that he says. He explains to us first what our posture should be toward the government. Then he's going to talk about what our posture should be towards everyone. And then he's going to talk about what our posture should be towards the times. And along the way, I'm going to be referencing three important companion texts. If you're taking notes, 1 Timothy 2, 1-4. Titus 3, 1-2, and 1 Peter 2, 13-17 all speak to this topic of the government. Not as extensively as Paul, but they're kind of companion texts. So, let's look at Romans 13. I'm going to start with verse 1. We're going to do the whole chapter. Paul starts the chapter by saying, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Let everyone be subject 
to the governing authorities. If you've got the, the paper thing with me, um, that word, um, the subject, down in verse 5, where it says, therefore it is necessary to submit, you can draw a line down to that. It's the same Greek word. It's translated subject in verse 1, submit in verse 5. But we are to submit or to be subject to the governing authorities. Um, that's our default posture towards the government. Just that sentence sums it up. We obey the government and we obey its laws. In 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14, he wrote, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as to the supreme, as to the, as the supreme authority or to governors. In Titus 3, 1, Titus wrote, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to do whatever is good. So this is the default position of a follower of Jesus, is that we have a posture of submission to the government. Now, the text gives us two reasons for this in the biblical text. Um, if you've got the sheet, uh, reason one is in verses, it's in um, verse one, two, and three, and reason number two is in verse four, the two reasons why we submit, the two reasons why we submit. So reason one, the first reason we submit to the government, it's found in that second half of verse one. After he had said, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, he says, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. We submit to the government because God is the one who instituted it. It was his idea. That's in the first, that first phrase, there is no authority except God has established it, is the idea of government. Government was God's idea, not ours. He ordained that sphere of life, and it is a good gift by God established by him to create a just and well-ordered society so that we can all thrive. So he instituted the idea of government. But not just the idea of government, that second phrase, the authorities or the sentence, the authorities that exist, the authorities themselves have been established by God. So not only did he establish government, but God established specific rulers. He sets up, we're told he's sovereign over all nations, that nations rise and fall at his will, and that rulers rise and fall at his will. Daniel 2.21, he says, it says that God deposes kings and he raises up others. In Daniel 4.17, the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth, and he gives them to anyone that he wishes. So the first reason that we submit to the government is because the government's been established by God. It was his idea. So look at verse 2. So then he says, consequently, since that's the reality, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So the person who resists the government and governmental authority is a person that's resisting God because those authorities are people that God has personally established there. So submitting to the government is a way for us to submit to God. Um, even in things as little as, uh, see if I can bring up this image. I'm not sure this works. Could you bring up this image, the next image on the PowerPoint? Even things as small as this, when it shows itself, and it may not show itself. Uh, there it is. Things as small as ripping the tags off of your mattress under the penalty of law. Is that really a law? I've always kind of wondered that, but uh, 
If it is, don't do it, okay? Because we submit to the authority. Um, if you remember the first sermon that I preached back in January 2019 from the story of Joshua's encounter with the captain of the Lord's army, who was Jesus incarnate at that time, a pre-incarnation appearance, um, we learned that we are to be people who are under authority, not people that are in authority. And that's what Paul's saying here, is that we are people who live under authority, the authority of God and the authorities that God has established. And if we don't, look at verse 3, for rulers hold no terror, or the, I'm sorry, the last, so that, again, whoever rebels against the authorities rebelling against God, what God has instituted, this is in verse 2, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. The word for judgment there that Paul uses, crema, consistently in the book of Romans, anytime he used that word, he is referring not to ju human judgment, but he's referring to God's judgment. So anybody who refuses to submit to the authorities God has created will stand and answer before God for that. And then in verse 3, he says, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you'll be commended. Do what is right, and you'll be commended. 1 Peter 2.14 says something very similar when he says that the, the government is sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. So, the first reason we submit to government is because God is the one who established government. The second reason we submit to government is in verse 4, and it's this. We submit because government and the servants of government are servants of God for good. They are the servants of God. So look at verse 4, for the one in authority is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to punish, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Notice if you have this text, you could circle it. The word servant appears twice really important word there. And this kind of harkens back to the sermon I did two weeks ago on Philemon. Do you remember when Paul talked about Philemon, his service? Do you remember the word I talked about that he used? It was the Greek word diakonos, to serve, which is where we get our word deacon, and it was frequently used of religious service. So that's a significant word. Look down to verse um, 6. You'll see the word servants again. And this one to me is even more significant because he uses a different Greek word. He uses the Greek word liturgos, where we get our English word liturgy, where we get our English word liturgy. And that word in the Greek in the New Testament is always used of religious service, always used of religious service. So Paul is really elevating and lifting high governmental authority. But they are, we submit not only because God is the establisher of government, but we submit because they are servants of God. And he's, he's lifting them really high. In Jeremiah 27, 6, God even calls wicked King Nebuchadnezzar my servant. So God has a very high view of religious authorities, a very high calling as his agents. I wish I had time to talk about it. Verse 4 is really important because verse 4 actually tells us uh, the government's job description, the two main things that government is created for by God. And I'm not going to spend much time on it. You can look at it there. But first, they are at the very beginning, that first sentence, God created government to promote the good. And then He created government. The second one you'll see in here is to protect the good. And they protect the good by 
punishing evil. But I don't want to get into all that, but that's two things you can write in verse 4 as we see the government's job description to promote the good and to protect the good by punishing evil. But I want to get to verse 5 because he says, therefore, therefore, it is necessary because of those two reasons that I just said, it is necessary to submit to the authorities. So he's simply restating the command. Because of those two things, because I have created government, it's established by me, rulers are put where they are by me, and because they're my servants, because of that, it is necessary to submit to the authorities. Not only because of possible punishment, he says, but also a matter of conscience. Not just for punishment, but also because of a matter of conscience. Um, in other words, we, we don't submit simply because we're afraid of what government might do to us, but we submit as a matter of conscience. We submit because it is the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. First Peter 2, 13, he says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. So I don't just submit out of fear of what they might do to me, but we as followers of Jesus submit for the sake of God. We do it in submission to Him, and we do it as an act of worship to Him. So look at verse 6. Paul's now going to give us a practical example. So twice he's told us our response to the government, which is submission, and the two reasons why, and now he's going to give us a practical example. So this is also why you pay taxes for the authority are God's servants who give their full time to governing. So this is why you pay taxes. That's just a practical example of how we submit. Will Rogers uh, said this, the only difference between death and taxes is that death doesn't get worse every time Congress meets. And I mean, we complain all the time about taxes, right? Nobody likes to pay taxes. Um, but our taxes do do good. They do good. They provide us with the roads that we drive on, the schools that our children attend. They support a lot of government workers who do a lot of essential things that we need. Um, the safety provided by police and firemen, services like 9-11. I, I'm, I'm leaving out a lot of people in government who do a lot of good things. But the taxes pay for those authorities that, who are God's servants, and it says, who give their full time of governing. They work hard. They work hard to give us the service they do. I love this, who give their full time to governing. In Greek, that word is significant in its intensity. It means to continually devote oneself to something with intense effort, to give constant care and attention to something or someone, to be steadfastly attentive to, to wait continually on. I mean, this is true of most anybody in leadership, if you know. Leadership is a heavy load, and people who do it, do it with a lot of diligence. And our government authorities do their work, most of them for our good and with a lot of diligence. So, we pay our taxes. Verse 7, on the back of the sheet, if you're following along on this, verse 7. For all these reasons, therefore, for all the things Paul just talked about, submitting to the government, because God established it, because they are His servants, for all those reasons... He says, give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. That first word, taxes, in the Greek referred to tribute, 
that was paid by people that had been militarily conquered by the Roman Empire, not Roman citizens. If you were a Roman citizen living in Rome or a colony like Philippi, you wouldn't pay tribute. But virtually anywhere else in the empire that had been conquered by the army, they would pay tribute to Rome, something that the people hated that anybody would hate. If we were invaded and conquered by some other country, the last thing you'd want to do is pay taxes to them that go back to their country, right? So they hated that, but he says, if you owe tribute, then pay the tribute. If you owe revenue, revenue. That's just the word for normal taxes that most of us pay, taxes on goods and services and income. And then he says, if respect, then respect, and if honor, honor. Those are pretty powerful words, right? I don't just submit to government, I give it my respect, and I give it honor. And that's not always the easiest thing to do, right? So I think a question that comes up is, you know, what if the authorities do not uphold God's moral law? What if the government that my taxes go to, they don't uphold God's moral law? What if our authorities, the governmental authorities, what if they themselves are unrighteous people? What if the government is corrupt? Even what if the government persecutes God's people and attacks the faith? Do we still owe them our respect and our honor? I find it so significant the context that Paul writes this in, um, because the empire and its emperors were not respectable institutions at all. The mighty Roman Empire was marked by greed, ambition, ruthless violence. The peace of Rome, as they called it, was oppressive to the vast majority of the people within that empire. And I'm telling you, the Caesars weren't any better. I've got a couple, three Caesars I want to talk about. Caligula, who was the Caesar who was reigning when Paul wrote this letter, was totally unfit as a ruler. He had his mother and his brother executed after he became the emperor so they would not remove him from power. Pretty crazy, huh? He openly committed incest with three of his sisters... He had the heads of statues of deities torn off all over the empire and busts of his head put in place of them. During the gladiatorial games, which were already cruel, he would choose random people out of the audience and have them brought down to be killed inside the Colosseum, attacked by wild animals just for entertainment. He once got so mad at the weather that he declared war on the god Neptune, the Roman god of the seas, and he ordered his soldiers to whip the waves... Uh, to punish him, and they brought home seashells as plunder from Neptune's domain. Um, You know, Jordan brought home seashells from Florida last March. He said they were from Maggie, but I wonder wonder what he was really, what that was really about. (laughs) Caligula installed his favorite horse, I can't even say the horse's name, as a senator. Can you imagine that? I'm curious, how would a horse vote in the Senate? You know, all in favor, you know, I, all opposed, nay. (laughs) I don't know. Do you think there was a lot of horsing around in the Senate while he was there? Uh, Do you ever think they heard it straight from the horse's mouth? Or do you ever think the Roman Senate ever changed horses midstream? I've got a lot of these. I probably should quit. But Rome was definitely a one-horse town in Caligula's day. Claudius, who followed him, uh, was every bit as cruel and inept, and I'm not going to say much about him. And then there was Nero. Yeah, by the way, that's Claudius. Yeah, go back to Claudius. Look at that dude's hair. Like, just that is not right. Okay, and then Nero, the next guy. Uh, 
Nero's mom killed Claudius in his sleep so Nero could replace him. He got so mad at his pregnant wife, he kicked her to death, killing her and the child. Um, And he was really the cruelest of them all. He was a sadistic killer of Christians, crucified thousands of Christians in the city of Rome. He had parties at night where he would take Christians who were live, he would impale them on a post, put them up, cover them in tar, and light them on fire to be the light for his parties. Okay, here's what I want you to see. It's to that empire and to those kind of emperors that Paul says, if respect, then respect, if honor, then honor. Give to everyone what you owe them. Paul gives no qualifiers. This was the kind of government he said, give respect and give them your honor. So whether or not the ruler is respectable in their behavior, whether or not the person in power agrees with your political positions or not, we give them the respect that is due them as servants of God. Even if in my eyes they don't deserve my respect, God says I give it to them. That's why Peter reiterates us, this to us in 1 Peter 2.17 where he says, show proper respect to everyone. Proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. According to 1 Timothy 2, 1-2, I think one of the main ways we show respect and give honor is by this. Paul says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority. Pray for them, be thankful for them. I think that's one of the main ways that we can honor those who are in authority over us. Okay, so that wraps up Paul on how our posture should be towards a government. Um, Pretty strong, wouldn't you say? Now he's going to talk about our posture towards everybody, and it's in verses 8 to 10. So let's read that. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For love, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and what other commands, command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. This is our posture towards everybody, agape love. Five times that word occurs. You know, I've got them in bold, but if you want to circle them, five times that word occurs, it's so important. According to Del Tackett, agape love, which is what Paul's talking about, is the steadfast, sacrificial zeal that seeks the true good of another. The steadfast, sacrificial zeal that seeks the good of another. It's 1 Corinthians kind of love. Love which is patient, kind, does not envy, does not boast, is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no records of wrongs, it does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres perseveres. This agape love is the bottom line for all Christian behavior to every human being there is. And this ties in closely when we talked about the image of God. As Paul said in Ephesians 5, 1 to 2, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, 
Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, we just celebrated communion. He walked in the way of love and we're called to walk in the way of love. Pretty high bar, right? Agape love to everybody, including the emperor. And this love command, again, it applies to everybody. Everyone, including our government officials. Because Paul tells us not just once but twice, if you will look, that loving everyone is the fulfillment of the law. Two times he says that, it's so important. Okay, so he's talked about what our posture should be towards the government, what our posture should be to everybody, submission to the government, towards everybody, agape love. And now he's going to talk about our posture toward the times. So look at verse 11, and I'm going to read verse 11, the beginning of verse 12. And do this, all of the above, submitting to government, loving everyone, do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. And I'm going to stop there. He's saying, wake up, be aware of the age that we live in, because we live in the age just before the age when Jesus returns as Lord and as King, and He the time of his return and new creation. It is around the corner is what Paul's saying. He uses the word near twice. Twice he uses that word. In verse 12, nearly, and nearer right above it at the end of verse 11. Now the question is like how near? If Paul said that then, you know, how near now? Uh, let me just speak briefly to that, but that's not, Paul's main point isn't watching the times. We'll get to what his main point is here. But, you know, Paul believed that Jesus could return in his lifetime. That's pretty clear from Thessalonians. We know that the early church in the first two centuries, and really the church since that time, has always thought Jesus was coming in their generation. So is it right around the corner for us? I mean, with the virus, that's kind of all in the air again, right? It must be soon. Perhaps it very well could be, but the truth is I don't know. And, but here's what I do know that if the Son doesn't know, because we're told that even the Son doesn't know, if He doesn't know the day or hour, then do you think I'm going to know the day or hour? Probably not, right? As Jesus told His followers in Acts 1-7, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by His own authority. That's not for me to know. What's for me to know and do is, the, is in verse 8, which is for me to be His witness in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's what my concern is to be, the gospel, always the gospel. And by the way, one thing regarding Jesus' return, the key verse to me regarding Jesus' return is Matthew 24, 14, where Jesus said this, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, which is the Greek word ethnox, ethnos, a eth, smaller ethnic tribal groups, tribal ethnic groups. The gospel will be preached as a testimony to every ethnic group and then the end will come. And there are currently 2,000 such ethnic groups which still have not even heard the gospel. So until the ethnos have a gospel witness, Jesus won't be returning. There's one thing I do know, another thing I guess that I don't know, but the second thing I know is in this text, um, the end of verse 11, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Can we say amen to that? 
His return is nearer today than it was the day I first believed. But again, the exact timing of the dawn of Jesus coming, that's not Paul's focus. He's really clear on what our posture should be towards the times and what our focus should be. And it's in the second line of verse 12, where he says, so, because it's all near, so, let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not carousing and in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. That's what Paul's concerned about, is how are we living in light of the age in which we live. If you've got this text, I want you to underline five things. And because Paul's actually doing something really cool here. In verse 11, where it says, wake up, I want you to underline that phrase, those two words, wake up. Then I want you to underline in verse 12, put aside, underline put aside. And then in verse 12, underline put on. And then in verse 13, underline behave decently or behave. And then in verse 14, clothe clothe. Five things to underline. I actually named them. I, I mean, I put numbers by them on my text. Number one, wake up. Number two, put aside. Number three, put on. Number four, behave. Number, and then, I mean, and then number three, clothe is another three, and I'm going to come to that. But I love this, because there's actually a strategic order to all this stuff that Paul is saying. Um, the wake up is pretty clear. The put aside in Greek literally is throw off, throw off, the put on makes a lot of sense. That's clear. Verse 13, behave decently, I put on there. That's the Greek word for to walk. And so he's saying walk decently. And then he says, clothe yourselves with Jesus. And here's what I think Paul's saying. The time has come to wake up. Wake up. That's the first one. Throw aside, like throw the covers off. Throw aside the deeds of darkness. So throw the covers off and get up and put on the armor of light. Get dressed and get to work. That's verse 13. Let us behave or let us walk. So get dressed and then let us get to work. Let us get to walking decently as in the daytime. Um, in other words, to me, this is his way of saying, let's get to the Lord's business. Okay? Yes, we're in the time. The time is nearer than ever before. But let's not focus on the timing. Let's focus on getting involved in the Lord's business. Throw off those deeds of darkness. Put on the armor of light which we're told in 1 Thessalonians 5, Ephesians 5, and Ephesians 6, the armor, and our weapons are the gospel of peace, righteousness or right living, faith, hope, love, goodness, and the Word of God. Put all of these things on and let us behave or walk decently as in the daytime. The word translated decently in the Greek literally means have good form. Isn't that cool? Walk with good form. I like that. Act properly. And I think in 1 Timothy 2, 2 to 4, Paul tells us how to act properly, where he says, live peacefully and quiet lives in all goodness and holiness. This is good and it pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. All of this is for the gospel. It's all for the gospel. And he wraps it up in verse 14 by telling us to clothe ourselves with Jesus Christ calling us intentionally to live Christ-like lives, 
showing forth the qualities that he exhibited when he walked on this earth. In other words, that's Paul's call to say, walk in his ways, walk in his ways. As one commentator put it, in all of our thoughts, attitudes, and behavior, we are to remember who we are wearing, and that is Jesus Christ our Lord. We do that, clothe ourselves with Him, and we don't think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. So that's Romans 13. That's Paul's call to us to tell us what should our posture be to the government, what should our posture be to all people, including government workers, and what should our posture be to these times. He's calling all of us to respect and submit to government, to its servants, to love all people with His kind of agape love, to live pure and good lives that mark us out as the people of Jesus in a very dark and disordered society. And would you not say we live in a dark and disordered society and people are needing to see those dressed in the armor of light? Okay, great text, would you not think? This is how we as followers of Jesus are to relate to the government. In all these times, not just these times, in all times, this is how I'm to relate to the government. I want to close with two quick thoughts and one question, if you don't mind. First, I want to say something about personal responsibility related to government. Because in our country, to a degree, we the people have a degree of authority, right? We've been given some authority. We bear a responsibility being the ones who vote for to put people in positions of authority. And I really believe that Paul would tell us that we are to engage in our government in all the ways that it allows us to be engaged. He did in Acts 16. Remember when he looked at his, in Philippi? He used his right as a Roman citizen. He used what the government allowed him. And I think he would tell us to use the things that are at our disposal. Use your constitutional rights, I think Paul would say. Make your voice heard. Work hard. Get a biblical worldview. Get in the world, word, word of God. Understand how God thinks. Get educated about the people you're voting for and go out and vote. Be informed and vote. And when the government oversteps its bounds or fails to uphold biblical justice, we have the right in our country to give voice to that. And I'm going to talk to you in just a minute about that. So, take, do what we're allowed to do with our government. Don't sit back. Be active. But second, I want to challenge all of us to be calm. Uh, not many people are calm this week after the debate, right? I mean, a lot of not calm, I think. The debate wasn't very calm. You know, it is a big election, and there's a lot at stake, right? But don't we say that at every election? It seems like I've said that the last five elections. Um, boy, there's a lot of tension in the air, isn't there? A lot of tension. And in a culture where everybody and their dog seems to be on edge right now, let us be a non-anxious presence in our culture. They need us to be a non-anxious presence more than ever before. We don't get overly fearful or anxious or emotionally worked up about the current polls or the last debate or the latest election news or even the election results when they come out. We don't get overly worked up because God is in control. That's the whole point of the beginning of Romans 13. He raises governments, He puts them down. God's in control, okay? So we don't get overly worked up. I may not like the results, but I don't let too much of that affect me because God is the one ultimately in control. 
There is no human being, no matter how powerful, who can thwart the ultimate plan of God. doesn't matter who they are. God has got this. And if I could say to me something that I think we all need to hear, that I need to hear, our hope is not in an elephant. Our hope is not in a donkey. Our hope is in the Lamb. Right? The Lamb of God, the King of kings. The Lord of Lords, politics will not save our country. It's important, and I get involved. But the one we look to is Jesus Christ. Finally, a question. Is Paul calling for blind allegiance to the government in this text? Is there any limits to obedience to the government? Is civil disobedience ever in order? Because for centuries, tyrannical governments have used the words of this text to proclaim unqualified allegiance to, total obedience to any form of government. I was reading this week about how the Nazi regime, how with the confessing church, how they would, when they would imprison them, they would take this text and kind of bludgeon them with it, of how they were not, they were not following it. Paul answers those questions in verse 7. And Paul is so good. Do you remember when we read with Philemon, how subtle he was? I love Paul's ability to say things subtly. Look at verse 7 where he says, give to everyone what you owe them. That word give is really significant. The Greek form of the word give there is unusual. And Paul uses it in an unusual way for a very good reason. It's because the same form of that word was used in Mark 12, 17, when Jesus said, give back, same Greek word, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, to God what is God's. Paul is quietly referencing that story of Jesus and the the tax story that happens there, where Jesus makes it very clear. You give to Caesar what's Caesar's. You submit, you respect, you honor, you love, but you give to God what is God's. It's not all His. The government is to be obeyed until it infringes on what is owed to God. So if the government ever commands any of us to do what God forbids, or if the government forbids us to do what God commands, then civil disobedience is the Christian's duty. In those cases, we agree with Peter, who said in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than human beings. Just as Daniel and his friends refused to worship the idol, the king's idol, in chapter 3 of that book, or how they refuse the command to not pray in chapter 6. In both of those cases, Daniel and his friends disobeyed the state, and they submitted to the punishment of the state, calmly leaving their lives in the hands of God, and doing so with an attitude of fearless respect in all of it. Such respect that after the miracles happened, They were elevated to high positions because of the way they lived with respect and honor, even towards the authorities. And to me, that's the key. If you must engage in civil disobedience, I take a lot from Romans 13. Don't do it, chapter 13, verse 12, in the way of the deeds of darkness. Don't do it in 13, 14. If you have to civilly disobey, don't do it gratifying the desires of the flesh. And Paul tells us in Galatians 5 what those are. Here's what civil disobedience looks like when it's run by the flesh. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. 
So if you must civilly disobey, do not do it in those ways. But how do we do it? Romans 13, 7, with respect and with honor. Romans 13, 8 to 10, with agape love. Romans 13, 12, with the armor of light put on. Romans 13, 13, we do it decently. Romans 13, 14, we do it as if we're clothed with the Lord Jesus Christ. If we must disobey, we do it on obedience to Romans 12, 18 and Romans 12, 21. That if it's possible as far as it depends on us to live at peace with everyone. And do not overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. If it comes to the point you feel you must civilly disobey, do it in the spirit of the Lord's words in Matthew 7, 12, where he said in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. If you ever feel like you need to do anything to give voice against the government, Treat them and do it to them the way you would want somebody to do it to you if you were in a position of authority, right? You do it to them the way they would want it done, the way you would want it done to yourself. So if ever we civilly disobey, let us do it with honor and respect and agape love. There's only one way to do that, frankly, and it's through the gospel. Um, this whole series, I've been trying to emphasize the gospel, that that is the most important thing we're to be about. And this ability to live in this way towards the government, like Paul talks, is really quite unhuman. I mean, it's, it is hard, right? It is hard. And we can only do it because of the gospel, because the gospel tells us three things, that every human being is created in the image of God and is to be treated with love and dignity. I don't care who they are, President Bush, Clinton, Obama, Trump, whoever is to come, everybody is created in the image of God and to be treated with dignity. The gospel tells us that. The gospel tells us we're equally all sinners. The ground at the cross is flat. I'm as much a sinner as anybody else. I'm not better than anybody else. That creates humility in the way I treat people in power and authority. And then third, the cross tells me that every human being is loved equally by God because He gave Himself for all. So everybody, no matter who they are, Caligula, Nero, Claudius, all loved by God. God, Christ died for all of them. Only Christianity and only the gospel gives us the ability and the resources to face government, an evil government that even is persecuting you. Because we have living within us Jesus the Lord, the one who could forgive those who put him to death. And so the gospel should shape all of our relationships, including our relationships with the government. So let me wrap up with a few questions. And these are just as much for me as for you. Uh, I want to know, with anybody in authority, governmental authority, but anybody in authority, how are you doing on the respect and the honor thing? How are you doing on the respect and the honor thing? When you talk about a government official, whether it be President Bush, Clinton, Obama, Trump, any national, state, local official, anybody in authority, do you do so? Do you talk about them with respect and with honor? 1 Timothy 2 tells us to be thankful for our government and the officials and to pray for them. How often... Are we thankful for those in government? How often do we pray for them? What are the primary words out of your spirit and out of your mouth 
towards government, people, and authority? Is it critique and criticism, or is it thanksgiving and prayer? Okay, enough said. I want to know, is there anybody in here who works for the government in any form? If you would, I'd like you to stand. First responders, law enforcement, anybody in the military, social workers, educators, representatives, anything. Anybody in here works for the government? If you do, please stand. Yeah, we praise God, but we honor people, right? So can we, can we give some applause to these guys? You are servants of the King of Kings. What you do is important, and I want to end by praying for you. Can we do that? Father, I pray for these who in different ways are involved in government or paid by government who do important things in our lives. We give thanks for them and for their effort. We know that as this text says, they work hard, they work diligently, they put in a lot of time, they pour out their blood, sweat, and tears to serve. So we're thankful for them. We ask your blessings upon them. Lord, teach us that no matter what's going on around us in the world, to have a proper posture towards our government that we submit and are subject to it, that we treat them with honor, respect, and love, that if we civilly disobey, we do it in those ways. Pray for our culture. It feels like a lot of darkness and disorder. We know the only answer is the gospel. May we be a people who are first and foremost about taking the gospel to those around us, that we would all think globally, but we would act locally. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, 12th, as always, you are sent to live the gospel this week.